Hello, this is Daniel Poppy, pastor at Emmaus Road Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. Thank you so much for listening to our podcast. We hope this message will help you grow in your walk with Christ. If you'd like to support this ministry, you can do so by visiting theroadfc.org and click on the giving link. Well, whether you're new to Advent and or have been observing Advent for many years or much of your lives, it's such a welcome annual reminder that our world still needs hope and love and peace and joy. Those are the traditional themes of each week of Advent. Because Advent is about longing. It's, it's about desiring something that maybe you have in part, but not quite in full. It's a time to identify with the longing also of our spiritual fathers and mothers. The things that we read about, the things that we experience for, through the scripture. You heard it today in the psalm, the language of longing for rescue. You know, because Israel, our ancient fathers and mothers, they lived in a time in history characterized by oppression and darkness and war and injustice, a prevailing lack of mercy. And just as they longed for rescue and hope, Advent invites us to also open our eyes to the darkness around us and lament the suffering of the world. You know, together we cry out for God to come and to put the world to right. You know, but in many ways, small and big, restoration is taking place. Good is happening. Light is shining in the darkness. You know, these last two months, you guys have all been generously donating towards faith, family, hospitality. We've had donation boxes in our foyer for just kind of the goods that many of these families need as they get their lives back together and uh, under firm foundation through our ministry partners of the Family Housing Network. Noah might have some final numbers for us in the weeks to come, estimates, but I can tell you that your donations were a carload. And when I say a carload, I'm not just talking about a trunk. I'm talking about the trunk, the back seat, the front seat packed to the roof. As Noah pulled away here, I helped him load up this week. And as he pulled away here, it looked like a college freshman moving away, (laughs) pulling into the dorm, you know, that first year of school. You know, together, your generosity was light in the darkness for these families. So good things are happening. There are bright spots of mercy and kindness and compassion. And that is because Christ has come. And yet Advent invites us into that tension of recognizing Christ has come, but still awaiting for Christ to come. It's such a dichotomy that we experience, isn't it? You know, for most of us, the season leading up to Christmas is our most favorite thing, the most favorite thing in the world. The lights, the decorations, the smells, the observances, the gatherings, the joy of family and friends, they're experienced in such special ways. But there is tension that the people of God has always found ourselves in. Yes, Christ has come, but yes, Christ is coming. Even in the midst of, you know, our comfortable celebrations, it doesn't take much to realize that the world still is broken and still is hurting. We, sometimes, ourselves, are hurt and broken. We're not always good at this. 
but Advent invites us into lament. It invites us into feeling these conditions of longing for God to set things right, to make us better. So we pray and we watch for signs of his presence. We do all that we can to be open and to be ready. In the midst of hardship and disappointment, we continue to wait. We continue to cling to hope. We believe that something is happening in the world. We're grateful for that. We cling on to that. We believe that something is working in our lives, large or small, life-giving, life-fulfilling. But even in December's lengthening darkness, the seed of joyful hope grows within us. We're pregnant with it, you might say. In our waiting, our hearts are enlarged. We cry that God is coming as we look forward to celebrating the birth of Christ. This Advent season will be in our prophetic passages in the books of Isaiah, leading us into Christmas morning. As we hear the word of the Lord, let us pray together. Gracious God, heaven and earth will pass away as we know it, but your word does not pass away. Your word stands forever. May our generation be attentive so that by the power of your Holy Spirit, we may remember your ways and gladly do right, meeting you wherever and whenever you appear. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, we will be in Isaiah chapter 64, verses 1 through 9 this morning. It'll be on the screens, but let me read this for us. Oh, that you would burst from the heavens and come down. How the mountains would quake in your presence. As fire causes wood to burn and water to boil, your coming would make the nations tremble. Then your enemies would learn the reason of your fame. When you came down long ago, you did awesome deeds beyond our highest expectations. And oh, how the mountains quaked. For since the world began, no ear has heard and no eye has seen a God like you who works for those who wait for him. You welcome those who gladly do good, who follow godly ways, but you have been angry with us, for we are not godly. We are constant sinners. How can people like us be saved? We are infected and impure with sin. When we display our righteous deeds, they are nothing but filthy rags. Like autumn leaves, we wither and fall. Our sin sweeps us away like the wind. Yet no one calls on your name or pleads with you for mercy. Therefore, we have turned away, you have turned away from us and turned us over to our sin. And yet, O oh Lord, and yet, O oh Lord, you are our father. We are the clay and you are the potter. We are formed by your hand. So don't be angry with us, Lord. Please don't remember our sin forever. Look at us, we pray, and see that we are all your people. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. 
you know, can you feel the angst, <laughs> the tension of the writer? Israel has once again found themselves in dire straits, a dire situation. Those of you who participate in our Thursday night discipleship class, our Bible study, you've been going through the Old Testament and you likely have gone through Isaiah recently and you've seen some of these situations. But once again, Israel and Judah are defeated and they're held in captivity. The land of promise that we heard about as God was leading the people out of Egypt, the promised land, Judah in the south and Israel in the north is desolate. It's ravaged by war and it's ransacked. Jerusalem, the city of promise, is destroyed and uninhabited. The promises of God to his people of freedom, blessing, and influence seem to have not worked out. The opening 40 chapters of Isaiah lay out the reasons for this. But to say it in short, God's people were rebellious. They turned away from all that God had promised and even all that God had given to them and they squandered it. They squandered the fulfilling of God's lavish generosity, selfishly hoarding it rather than sharing it freely with those around them as God desired. You know, their outlook was not one of abundance and generosity and consolation. Instead, their outlook, the way they lived their life, was one of scarcity and greed and desolation. And one thing that scripture makes clear over and over is that the selfish ways of the world, perhaps the fallen ways of the corrupted human heart, that left unchecked, eventually, those things will collapse in upon themselves. Unless God's hand is there to protect and to guide, so as Israel turned from God, their world began to collapse in around them. It is from the Babylonian dungeon cell or the closet of the slave that the writer of Isaiah cries, Oh, that you would burst forth from heavens and come down. You did it before. You brought us out of Egypt, you parted the sea so we could walk on dry land. You gave us water and bread from heaven when we were in the desert. Come and save us once again. And yet the promise the prophet acknowledges, saying we are like autumn leaves. We wither and we fall. And our sins have swept us away like the wind. And like Israel, our situations today carry some of the same anxiety that we see from our passage. Yet we might be of two minds when we consider this cry. You might be of two minds as you're hearing this message, like Merry Christmas. <laughs> you know, we might be of two minds when we consider our need for rescue depicted in Scripture. On one hand, it's easy to see the needs and injustice that's out there. When the news comes in with story after story of catastrophe and national disaster, famine, the earth struggling to sustain us, constant division, violence, and war, when we read the headlines, it's clear that we need rescue. It's clear that something's broken, something's not quite right. But then again, 
Your home may be warm. My home is warm. Your needs never really feel truly that in danger of not being met. You likely know where your next meal is coming from. You know that you will have heat, water, and security when you return home. We have no shortage of entertainment to help distract us from the world that continues to collapse in upon itself. I'm not trying to be a downer today. I'm just simply inviting us into what Advent calls us to. And this is exactly where Israel found themselves in the generations prior to this desolation that we read about in Isaiah 64. Can we identify with the anxious cry for rescue, the need of a savior felt that led to the coming of the Messiah on that Christmas morning? Do you long for the arrival of a savior? And yet the cries in our scripture seem to be another in a long series of petitions that God appears to somehow not be hearing or somehow not be acting upon. You know, we've had 40 chapters in Isaiah with cries like this. And I'm sure you've probably felt that. Have you ever felt that God was just distant or God was unhearing your cries for help? Isaiah raises for us kind of a substantial theological question about the character of God that we have to consider this morning and God's action in the world. We see both this baffling dichotomy, this God that seems to be absent, not hearing, not hearing the cries of the people, and yet the passage ends with Isaiah saying, and yet you are our father. We are the clay molded by your hands. You know, this isn't by accident. Isaiah's causing us to consider something. You see, too often, Israel treated God like their own personal on-demand security system. There when you wanted him, but easily ignored when everything was going just fine. <laughs> Isaiah reminds us that God is not ours in the same way he was not Israel's. To be contained and to be controlled and further, our passage reminds us of what may happen when we turn away from God, when we pull away from God, when our sin, our selfishness isolates us from God, our world begins to collapse in upon itself. But how can God abide the collapsing? Isn't he loving? Doesn't he care for us? Surely there's egregious wrongs in the world that deserve to be righted. Why would God deliver Israel from Egypt and yet somehow not be hearing their cries to deliver them out of Babylon? Why would God send the Messiah to rescue all humanity from sin and death and yet seemingly not rescue over six million Jews from Hitler's death camps? We have to reckon with this in our faith. We read stories about God's spectacular interventions throughout history. Yet we look in vain for such visible signs of God's involvement in our small circumstances or the big circumstances of our world. 
You know, we want the mountains to quake, the nations to tremble at God's presence. Instead, the sufferings of our day seem to be met with silence all too often. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, writing from a German concentration camp in 1944, dared to draw theological conclusions to this predicament in saying, God would have us know that we must live as men who manage our lives faithfully even when his presence feels unseen. This is the choice that we have with free will and freedom that we have been given what will we do with it? After all, God lets so many live in the world without, work, without a working hypothesis of who he is. This is the very same God who others stand and worship continually. Before God and with God, we have a choice to live with or without him. God lets himself be pushed out of the world and yet right onto a cross. He appears weak and powerless in the world, and that's precisely the way, the only way in which he is with us and helps us and rescues us in divine power and glory. You see, for Bonhoeffer, the realization did not amount to a denial of faith, but to a retrieval of faith in God the Messiah who came in weakness as a babe, whose power was ultimately in his suffering, whose omnipotence was in vulnerability. Theologian Scott Bader Say says it like this, what Bonhoeffer discovered was that the hiddenness of God is not a cloak of humility temporarily covering an awesome, powerful glory, kind of a Clark Kent Superman kind of act. But rather, it is a reflection of the divine character, a divine determination to relate to the world through vulnerability, through a path of non-coercive love, suffering service, rather than through domination and force. It's all too easy for us to lose ourselves in the wilderness and then to cry out, God, how could you let me get lost? <laughs> like Israel, we may look around and recognize our dire need for rescue and feel that God is hiding from us. But in our passage today, God's hiding is simply a, a mechanism to, in order to deconstruct our distorted set of beliefs and practices, thereby opening us to receiving once again a fresh and anew God's calling to be his faithful people. The hiding in this passage here is depicted as a form of divine judgment, but ultimately, it's not a judgment. Ultimately, it serves as a divine mercy invitation. You know, when our cries for God to burst from heaven in divine glory seem to be met with a resounding no, our hearts are cleared for the repentance and the reconciliation that is met with a clear and more profound resounding yes from heaven. 
God's refusal to replicate, replicate a Red Sea type deliverance from all that overshadows us does not mean that God has abandoned us. After all, God did hear Israel's cry, even in Babylon. As his people returned their hearts to him, they were brought out of Babylon. The city of promise was once again rebuilt, Jerusalem. The Messiah, it did indeed come and dwell among us. The hope of Advent does not rely on God's acting today in the same ways that he acted in the ancient stories of scripture, but it does rely on God being the same yesterday, today, and forever. And this is what we know of God, that he hears our cries, that God never abandons us, and God will redeem and restore all who call upon his name. And God promises to redeem all of creation, heaven and earth, making it new once again. The hope of Advent is found in the humble remembrance that no matter our desperation or our discomfort, we are God's people. And when we submit and worship and graciously receive from God and share those blessings with others, in us the light of heaven may shine brightly, even in this tension of Christ come, but Christ coming. And verse 8 from our passage sets us straight. Oh Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay, and you are the potter. We are all formed by your hand. Do you feel that today? Today, may we declare, O oh Lord, you are our Father. May we be molded and formed into the perfect likeness that we are intended to be through God's shaping of our lives. May we break from the distractions long enough to engage with the one to whom all glory and honor and praise belongs. And may our cries of hope and help be directed toward the one who is able and willing to save, not towards our man-made approximations. May we rest in the longing and the waiting of Advent May we hope in the coming of our Lord. Amen.